2: Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, I am joined by the hugely successful songwriter and musician Paul Barry. A three-time Ivan Novello Award winner, Paul formed his first band, The Questions, whilst at high school in Edinburgh in the summer of 77. A few years later, the band was supporting The Jam, signing to Paul Weller's Respond record label. We'll hear stories of that, the Style Council, Tracy Young, and much more. Plus, how over the past 30-plus years as a songwriter, Paul has had huge success – smash hit singles for the likes of Cher, Enrique Iglesias, James Bay. He's also written for and with the likes of Celine Dion, Tina Turner, Ross Stewart, Lionel Richie, Misha Paris, Ricky Martin, and James Morrison. And listen out for an exclusive reveal of a Paul Weller link in our chat on that as well. Some great stories, writing hugely successful, massive selling smash hit songs for some of the world's biggest pop stars. Let's get into it. Paul Barry, thanks for joining me.
3: Thank you, Dan. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good, yeah. I'm keeping busy writing a lot. It's been mostly on Zoom the past couple of years with the pandemic thing. You know, I found a new way of working, like everyone did. I actually started during the pandemic doing some of my own stuff again, which I hadn't done for many years. You know, I've basically been a songwriter for the past, I mean, is it 30 years or something? You know, really kind of writing for other people rather than where I started with the questions. You know, so that's been fun. Uh, I think everyone kind of had a pandemic uh, record in them, you know. (laughs) One song I wrote, um, seeing the George Floyd video, which, you know, had an effect on most people. I I wrote a song immediately, I saw it and recorded it the next day. And a friend of mine did a little video to it. And uh, I phoned up Paul and and asked him if he would, uh, you know, post it on his social media thing you know uh, and he did bless him uh, and so did James Bay who I, I've worked with uh, over the years so there was that little thing so so that says so it is on Spotify it's the one in, only song I've got on Spotify but it's probably had like I don't know 50 plays or something
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well there'll be more <laughs> after this conversation I promise you that that's true hey look let's go back to the beginning because you were such a young kid when the questions started you were still at school weren't you
3: yeah yeah I mean it started really you age 12, with myself and Stephen Lennon, uh, we were both just mad Beatles fans. He was Lennon and I was Mick you know. <laughs> um, we just in his bedroom when the Beatles complete, just going through these amazing songs. Oh my God, where did you play that? You know, doing that. And I had a garage uh, in my house, inside uh, of my house, and um, John Robinson was uh, at our school. And so, about a year after Stephen and I started, we met with John and we formed the band, The Questions, and we rehearsed in my little garage. And that, that's how it all started, really. Proper garage bands. <laughs> but we were still at school. We sent a tape to Bruce Findlay, who at that time had Zoom Records, he was just starting Zoom Records, which was cool little indie label in Edinburgh and that, you know, we we ended up getting it on the telly at age 15 16, you know Uh, it was great fun, it was a great time as well it just seemed like everything was possible this is like 1977 or something, you know, 78 magical time, it really was and of course the jam were Everything, every, everything, everything. I mean, I grew up on the Beatles and Stevie Wonder, but then here and there, particularly for me in Tube Station, was like, just didn't know what an amazing song that was. And then, so we were managed for a while by Bruce Findlay, and bless him he was great Bruce um lovely man and of course he went on to have massive success with Simple Minds as he managed them you know a classic moment we were about 17-18 and he'd done a few things with us and we'd got a little bit of traction but I'll never forget he sat us down and said um look guys I'm gonna have to tell you I've got this other band and I really need to concentrate on them and I don't think I can give you the time you deserve you know this other band with Simple Minds you know what even at that age I thought that's really cool. The way he did it was very cool, and I actually I spoke to him only a couple of weeks ago about it. You know, I said to him, Just want to say, man, that was kind of cool. And, and he, he's brilliant, he was really. I, really
2: I mean, yeah. to be fair, it's not, it wasn't a bad decision that he made there, right? <laughs> and he said,
3: Oh, it was great that you then went on to, to meet Weller, you know, and that was um, so just trying to get the timeline. So, so I think John Robinson sent the tape first of all, we getting some songs together, and he sent the tape to Paul. And as Paul does, he replied, you know, not many people even would do that. But not only did he reply, he said he loved the songs and he even went through some of them and made some suggestions and stuff, which always, uh, something about, well, it, He's just one of those rare people that you should listen to what he says because most of the suggestions he makes have got some merit to them. So, you yeah. know, and we didn't always listen, but uh, it was great to get that response. And uh, and then the next thing he said, oh, you know, we're we're playing Edinburgh. Do you want to support us? Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let me think about that for all of us. Yeah, <laughs> And meeting him was amazing. I've never met anyone so unaffected as Weller. I'm sure people have told you that, right? And he's the same now as he was then. That's the funny thing. So I met him, what, I don't know, almost to be 18 or something. You know, I'm still in touch with him now. I was I was working with him two, three years back, and I, and I, I speak to him every now and then. He sends me songs sometimes on the, on the new records and says, What do you think? He's still exactly the same Paul Weller that he was then. Come and listen to this, you know, or, or you know, with fans who the whole sound check thing oh, getting it sometimes the sound checks were more more like gigs you know they were so packed it was great i'd never seen a band doing that you know and I, I don't think anyone's done it since it was uh, it was very genuine.
2: It's always been like that. The connection with fans was so important for the jam, and that, like you say, those sound checks and things. So, but for a young band to get that gig supporting them, oh, it's brilliant.
3: Wow, it was amazing. We, um, it wasn't all good though. I have to say, because we would sometimes it, it was good, but I mean, we got a lot of, <laughs> we got a lot of coins and shoes and coats. <laughs> Spit, and we had to get pretty good at dodging around this big,
2: this you know. <laughs> you were pretty nimble, you were pretty yeah, nimble. Yeah, we had to be
3: nimble. <laughs> I remember our drummer Frank used to tilt his cymbals up sometimes so he wouldn't get hit by the coins. Our roadie Derek would collect the coins at the end of some of the gigs and it'd be like, Oh, great, that's that's the drink sorted out.
2: Of <laughs> I can now play cards with John Weller, brilliant.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no, you didn't want to do that, but we really did struggle sometimes because we were doing quite so. Uh, White boys or you know blue eyed or whatever you were doing that and that didn't go down well with everyone. I think we eventually won over a certain audience, you know. But for a while it was uh, a bit hairy. There was one gig in particular in Leeds where. (laughs) <laughs> your face, your face as you remember uh, this is brilliant. You know, well, 7,000 people vibrating with hate is something I'd never experienced before in one place, you know, because the uh, PA broke down. John, and his uh, wisdom, said, are you waiting for someone? Yeah, yeah. well, you can even wait. The police wanted to arrest us backstage for inciting a riot. I'm glad to see things improved you know we actually had some amazing gigs Um, supporting the jam and the style council later and on our own you know um 100 Club was a great gig we did that many times and some amazing nights
2: Uh, yeah Paul as a musician is obviously very prolific the amount of material we've had over the past 40, 45 years is incredible but talking to people on this podcast he's quite a prolific writer as well so the fact that he's like handwriting letters back to fans you sent like a demo or John sent a demo over and his handwriting back is remarkable isn't it like this is a guy who's topping the charts
3: and and even now Dan it's still like like I sent him during the lockdown thing I was writing these things you know, I was writing a few songs and I, I just sent him things and I thought he probably won't reply or, you know, or maybe in a month he'll say, oh, sorry, I didn't get it. Usually straight away or if it's not straight away, he'll say, oh, I was busy or something and he'll give a full reply and he'll go into, not only that, he'll make a bunch of suggestions about, I like that bit, I like that is that
2: right? You know, and it's thinking... Paul, how do you have the time to? <laughs> yeah, do that? Yeah. Yeah, it's so yeah. And he's got young kids. I mean, I don't understand. I've got no time whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, he's got, how many has he got now? Is it seven? <laughs> I think eight. Yeah. 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 Now, look. Let's let's talk through this this story then of, of signing to respond. What was the brief? Because you weren't just signed as the questions. You were also writing for other people. So they were they were Paul recognized your songwriting qualities as much as the band's qualities.
3: Well, interesting. You should say that. Yes, it did. We were kind of a bit blinded into just wanting to do her own thing. And Paul kept saying, you know, you should be writing for different acts, doing different stuff. He even introduced us to Bananarama before they had any releases. He said, you should write songs for them. And I was like, nah, why do I want to do that? You know, so again, you know, he said a lot of things like that that I wish I'd listened to. Funnily enough, I ended, I ended up writing With them many years later, in the 90s, mid-90s, I did an album with them, which was, um, as they say, big in Japan, which means it wasn't. wasn't (laughs) But it was funny, you know, and and I joked about it then when I met them. I said, you know, Paul said uh, I should work with you guys uh, way back then, and I wish I had done. So, yeah, he did encourage that very much, and I wish we'd done a bit more of it, obviously, you know, Tracy's stuff and that. Um, he was very into the whole eclectic thing about people working in different genres and, and working with different people and he's, as he still is, the body of work he's done, it's incredible. And the amount of people he's just been around and that gravitate towards him, it's, it's amazing, and I know why, because of his energy and his enthusiasm, you know, and his talent, but it's also, you know, it's more than just talent, what I'm saying.
2: So there was this run of singles from 82, so this- this is towards the end of the jam, Respond Records, Paul set this up, this label. And he talks about it kind of being his version of Motown where there's this kind of these artists and house bands and everybody kind of, you know, working together and it feeling like a, a family. But this is run of singles where... I mean, people love these singles. I, I mentioned on social media that we were chatting and the amount of people are like, oh my God, work and play is incredible. Or "Tear Soup is, oh my God, or the price you pay. All, like, People love these singles, but they didn't break the top 40, did they? Which is nuts. Yeah, it was very hard in those days. I think Tuesday
3: Sunshine got the closest, I think 45, 46 and I think it sold like 40,000 records to do that. Which is still a massive, massive amount. People
2: would kill for that,
3: they say. Yeah, that would be like number one for 10 weeks now. Insane, isn't it? That was frustrating.
2: So the house that Jack wrote was the only one that broke the top 10, you know. Was that seen as disappointing? Because you say like 40,000 records is a huge amount. But was that seen as disappointing? And like, it, Yeah, it, it was.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah because we
2: mad, And you know, so you don't get on
3: top of the pops until you break top 40, you know. Uh, although we went home with Tracy... On top of pops. We didn't do it in our own right. So it was frustrating that, you know, I think Tuesday Sunshine was the closest we got. It got a bit of airplay, but it just didn't connect. I mean, my feeling, Dan, was that I don't think we ever really captured in the studio the energy that we had. We always struggled with that, I think, capturing in the recording the way we were alive, what we could do, what we could generate. That was frustrating, but I, I do like. It's funny you mentioned those ones. I I I'd like work and play. I thought that was good, and um, price you pay, and Tuesday sunshine. A lot of the others I, I found just we didn't quite capture the sound recording that was a bit frustrating.
2: I should ask you about some of the credits on, on some of the singles as well. So Spanner has been on the podcast. So Spanner's mentioned on, I think it's Price You Pay, thanks to Spanner. Yeah. So he was plugging the singles, was he, as well? Yeah,
3: he was. Yeah, yeah. It was very much, uh, like you say, a family thing. Yeah. Probably, and I think Simon Halfon was doing some of the artwork. Yeah, it was all very much um, the Motown idea of, uh, of uh, you know, a team effort. Yeah.
2: Uh, we've also got Kenny, you Scottish bastards, Wheeler. Kenny Wheeler. Have you done have you done an interview with Kenny? I have. I was lucky enough to go to Kenny's house and chat with him. And what a character. Brilliant. Yeah. fine, <laughs> <laughs> what was it like when with Kenny back in the day? Because his remit then was a bit different, right? Yeah,
3: he's working in a slightly different capacity then. Then it was, uh, well, he, he was just larger than life, as he always has been. And, um, you know, he didn't take no shit. Also, just always raised the sort of uh, mood of the room, you know.
2: Kenny was always a, a bright spot. And obviously Paul's involved in managing you, but I'm guessing John Weller did quite a lot of that stuff as well, right?
3: Yeah, a fair amount, Um I think we sort of lost our way a little bit when we started doing the album. Looking back, we probably should have looked at different producers and, uh, at that time uh, to, try, to try and um, work out that problem. We did actually try a couple of people, but it, it didn't really work out. Um, I think although we were still gigging a lot, I think we, we never quite got the studio thing right at the end there, and that's
2: ultimately, I think, what led us to, or, or for me mm-hmm. anyway, feeling that. We'd run, we'd run its path, you know? That album, Belief, in 1984. So at this time, you're also working as part of the Style Council gigs, and there's the Respond um, Posse gigs and all that stuff. So we'll talk, actually, let's talk about the Style Council because it was really interesting re watching the documentary the other day as part of the exhibition. And that reminder that the Style Council, in those early council meetings gigs, Style Council come on first, then you got Billy Bragg, then you then Billy Bragg, then the Style Council, and they were really shaking up a bit. How did the audiences take to that? Those
3: gigs were mostly pretty good, actually. I mean, really good. By that time, I think the haters would maybe probably go to the bar <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and few, I guess there's and,
2: also less of them because you were closer to sound to the style council than you were to the jam right
3: yeah that's true that happened so there was less of that who are these soul boys kind of thing you know. and, and also they'd, they'd heard a bit of our music by then but it was an amazing thing doing that to be in the middle of a show like that it was brilliant and so cool and Billy Bragg was amazing too it was great fun doing that too with him we played everywhere in the UK on our own as well we did a lot of gigs up and down and then we also did like our Respond Posse tour with Tracy as well, you know,
2: and Von Toulouse and A-Craise. There were those tours as well. There's this album I've got here. Let me show you this. So this yeah. is almost like the, the Respond version of Motown Chartbusters, right? Yeah. Where you had all these different tracks from different, you know, from Tracy and a that like you mentioned, and you're on their work and play and building on a strong foundations on there. But I just want to, I want to read you because one of the things I loved about the style council is that whole kind of cappuccino kid thing. And that's it. the kind of notes from Paul on these albums and singles and all that kind of stuff was brilliant for style council and a lot of the response stuff. So here we go. This is what it says about the questions. Let's see if you remember any of this. So Haley from Edinburgh it has taken John, Frank and Paul two years to reach where they now find themselves with a direction, with faith and with confidence. And now the ability. They don't have to rely on other people's perspectives of hipness. They have their own. In the shape and context of classic songs. If Tracy embodies response vitality, then the questions represents its quality. They have a word for cats like these. It's potential. Let it breathe and grow as potential must. And I just read, reread that this morning. I thought, that is class, man. It
3: is class. And that is well, you know, let potential grow and breathe as it must. That's, and he carries that through. In everything he does, it's brilliant. It's not like he's got a Midas touch. It's just that he understands um, how potential must get that chance to, to breathe and grow. And, and someone like him can be so inspiring. You know, when someone like him says, "That's great, that you did that then You know, that even, even now, when I, the, the songs I, I sent him recently, and he sent me like back like a little text and that, and up and thumbs up and. and <laughs> I wanted to make it into a T-shirt. Go, you know, <laughs> oh well, I said this, you know. I still, I still get a kick out of that, you know. Is you know, I don't think of him as Paul Weller pop star. He's he's just a cool guy. But I, I still feel like a you know seventeen year old kid again. Taking me right back to that time of him reacting to what we were doing then and believing in it, it's just just an incredible thing, you know.
2: Yeah, we mentioned the album Belief and um, I should mention also Steve White played a bit on it, Barbara Snow, obviously both, you know, honorary councillors and then band members of the Style Council as well. Maureen Barry. Yeah. Relation, obviously, right? Yeah, sister, yeah. Sister, credited with body popping on the album. (laughs) (laughs) She was great. She's, again, live,
3: you know, Maureen had a lot singing and just her vitality, you know. Yeah, she had a great time. I mean, she's, She's not continued in music she's gone on and had kids and um,
2: living in America now can she still break dance so we know
3: <laughs> um- I think she's got a dodgy ankle, but I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> she'll give it a go, <laughs> go right? She'll
2: <laughs> Now we talk about potential. I mean, Mr. Weller must have seen something in you to encourage the songwriting and stuff, because you've been pretty successful at this, right? I've done all right. Done all you've right. done all right. Let's talk yeah. through some of the art. I mean, you mentioned Banana Rama. There's Alison Limerick. There's another Jam Weller connection there, I think, as well. But the big one for me, this takes me right back to the beginning of my radio career, right? I was BBC Radio Bristol. John Turner yeah, used to do the mid-morning show, right? It's a huge, big show. in and he'd open his show around this time in the 90s. He'd open his show with this album, songs from this album every day that I'm going to mention. We love this LP. It was huge. Share, believe. And he'd play one day we be believe then it'd be strong enough. I mean, that, the fact that you wrote those songs is enough for anybody. Just one career, that would be done. Just those and is enough. I mean, God, you must be so proud of those.
3: That was so much fun. I mean... For about five years before that, I had been sort of focusing on writing because up until that point, I, I, I wanted to be an artist and I did have a band. After the questions, I had one band with a guy called Steve Torch who co-wrote Believe with me. We did a record called All Things Bright and Beautiful. The, the name of the band was God's Gift. We made, I think we made a great record, which was released in Europe. It wasn't released in the UK. And I was really proud of that, but it didn't really do anything. And I think at that point, I should mention, oh yeah, and the guy who got me in touch with Steve Torch, was a guy called Brian Rowland, kind of managed us at that point, the band. And then he encouraged me to focus on writing as well. And I think the disappointment of that record, that band not taking off really, and then me trying, doing some writing. And I actually worked with... Peter Waterman for a while. That's how I did the panorama and a few other dan- mainly dance stuff, you know. But it was a was great
2: that like Gina thing. G and all that so at that, that time? Was that yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: that sort of stuff. Brian Rowling then saying like you should focus on on writing. It was like a turning a key, and suddenly I let go of the artist thing. I just thought, you know what, just let go of that. It's so hard doing the artist thing because you have to be so many things. Just being a writer is a lot less stressful, <laughs> it's a, and it's a lot more fun. And uh, you know, all of a sudden, I was doing these different things. I'd be doing a dance record, then I'd be doing a country song, or you know, a, a more sort of singer songwriting thing the next week. And I uh, and I loved that. All, all of a sudden, I really had fun again in music, you know. And and I was doing different bits and pieces. And I'd written a, a song for a, a boy band in Italy, and I'd written this song. Dove Lamore, you know, Cher got to hear it. It's just one of those crazy things, you know. Somebody in our guy played it, she said, oh, I love that. Oh, I'll do that. We have a production team with Brian Rowling and Mark Taylor and myself. Brian was the guy that puts it all together. Mark was the producer, and at that point I was the writer there. She heard that and said, I want to do that. She came over to do one song. It was just one of those magical things. She really clicked and really enjoyed working with us instead of saying two days she stayed six weeks (laughs) at the end of that time i had five songs on the album and the last one was believe
2: and And it was such i mean
3: a massive hit all over the world it was insane it was (laughs) completely insane you know and at the time i remember thinking i just hope it's a top 20 record you would hope we don't put some sort of nail in the coffin of cher's career you know
2: it had been a few years since she'd been around
3: with chart success, hadn't it? Like five years, six years? She'd had one album with Warners and there was one song on it written by a guy from Liverpool. It was called One on One or One by One. I think One by One it was called. And that was quite a good song, but the rest of the album was, yeah. And Warners had done a two album deal. So this was the second album and they weren't really that bothered. So they handed her to a couple of DJs and she hated the experience. She hated it so much, she was almost in tears. So when she came to our place just to do that one song and she met us and she saw the way we worked and we were all about songs and just chatting to her. We had this little studio and she sat on this little sofa about the size of this tiny little sofa with me and Mark. We just got on and she actually said, let's do some more, you know, and I wrote Strong Enough, like while she was there pretty much. Because, you know, I was trying to do I will Survive. She said she wanted to do something like that. So we got that together. And I remember the, the first day, like the end of the first day, she did something I've never seen her do since. She got a bottle of wine and had a couple of glasses of wine. And she was in tears. I said, what, what's up? She she felt good. I guess she said, this is great. I, I love this. And it's been so horrible. It's hard to think of Cher going into a situation, working with other people and not enjoying it, you know. Mm. Um, I
2: won't say who they were. Uh, but also the fact that she still cares enough, still cares, like that much. She still wants to create something that, that means something to people. And, and she still does. I'm, uh, I'm
3: uh, in the process of doing something just now, which hopefully will pan out with her. But she's she still cares that much. You know, she's still very um, self-critical. You know, a strange, strange mixture of diva and quite insecure in a, mm. in a charming way but she's got a great sense of humour as well she was sitting there and she just turns around to me and goes so what the F have you done then to be doing a show record oh <laughs> yeah, okay. no, well, well what's the matter with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah.
2: <laughs> so when you write a song like I mean Believe obviously is a full production it's not just the lyrics although they are fabulous but there's all the effects on the voice so when you write that song are you thinking about that that vocal effect was Mark Taylor producer right. we were in the same building i had a little
3: room upstairs writing room and he had a studio in the basement and he ran upstairs and he said i've done something uh, this is this effect and it's either brilliant or awful and, I, and so we both <laughs> ran downstairs and he had it over the whole song and i said "That's amazing it's brilliant but we can't have it on the whole song so we picked out the lines that we thought he worked on and uh, we said well we'll play it tomorrow so she might hate it she comes in and goes I love it it raised the original vocal but cut two, two weeks three weeks later there's a meeting with the record company the chairman of the record company and that and he says okay we're going to go with Believe for the first single but you're not having that effect on it that's awful not on my record and we're like oh no no Cher goes uh, over my dead effing body that's the (laughs) <laughs> and and that was it you know I, I was doing a covers band thing at the time and I used to take up records of things I was working on every now and give them to the DJ and I remember I said put this on you know and straight away people hadn't heard it yet but they, they listened to it and they, and they started doing robot dancing on the dance floor they got it it was it was a thing you know you could say oh I think this is going to be a hit." yeah a bit of an understatement but yeah
2: <laughs> some of the stars that you've worked with as well as Cher I mean I have to name these people right so we got Rod Stewart James Morrison, who, funny enough, did some stuff with Weller recently, and I know Paul was a big fan of James Morrison, Lionel Richie, Tina Turner, Enrique Iglesias is another one we should come back to as well, because those were smash hits, massive songs all around the world. What is it about these type of artists, and I'll include Paul in this as well, that makes their songs and makes their music and the way they deliver their music, because obviously it's, it's as much down to the quality of the writing as it is their performance too, but yeah, you know, how does it connect and some people just don't?
3: I think it's that uh, instant recognition. You know, instantly it's the voice for me anyway. Some people just have that and they might not be great singers technically, but you know straight away, like Tina Turner, you know straight away that's Tina Turner. And Cher too, actually, I hadn't thought about Cher in that way until the day that I worked with her in the studio. And, you know, I was going through the song with her and just playing, it and she sang and it's like, oh my God, that's Cher. There's no one else in the world that sounds like that, you know. And the same with Tina Turner. I had an amazing, amazing day with Tina Turner just playing her song. And I had this thing, I was playing her a song. She didn't know it yet. So I just played it on the guitar a wee bit. And I'm sat there on the sofa with her. And she's reading the lyrics. Yeah, And she's doing it. She starts singing. She gets up doing the (laughs) Tina thing. (laughs) And her glasses break in the middle of it, right? I don't know why. They just break. Most people would stop and say, oh, sorry, I'll just take my glasses. No. In the she keeps singing the song, man. Standing up, dancing, singing it. Fucking the glasses, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my God. And chills, real
2: chills. Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. We have to also talk Enrique Iglesias as well. Again, winning you Ivor Novello Awards, these huge, big international smash hit singles. Hero with you these songs that dominated our charts right around the world how did that connection come about
3: well again a bit like the share thing i'd written a song called by for
1: how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment
0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash ACAST.
3: Burrow singer in South America. Now, the thing is, this is in 99, I think, nineteen ninety nine, ninety eight. Uh, in those days, you could release a song, with someone somewhere else in South America, and no one would know about it. You wouldn't get away with that nowadays because mm. it's so easy to just hang on. You know, if someone sends you a demo, and you go, you just uh, buy almost something, and then you yeah, you can in in ten minutes you've checked out if it's been released. You know. Yes, yeah. but in those days you you could <laughs> you could release a song like that, and then no one would ever know about it. So we got a call from someone we knew saying that Julio's son uh, is looking for a song, you know, and I was a bit. Helios, really? <laughs> but, well, I've got this song, you know, Balamos Amos, I'd written it, and um, probably one of the fastest songs I've ever written. It's a friend of mine who spoke Spanish. I remember I phoned her up and said, what's Let's Dance in Spanish in Bayamos? And I got the pronunciation along. It's, I said, it's actually Bailamos but I, by La I did it. I put it on the O, which Enrique years later said, You did that. Everyone said, Did you do that deliberately? Because that's what people keep saying to me. I oh, just, it's Glaswegian, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wrote it. We demoed it, and this girl did it in South America. That was the end of it. And then the phone calls comes through, you know, Julio's son's looking for something, and he's never done anything in English. And it was just perfect because it was it had this couple of phrases in Spanish, but the rest of the song was English. And he loved it, did it, bang, number one in America. Huge. And then I uh, did another couple of songs for him, which were hits in America. And then we started writing together. We did Be With You, which is another number one. And then we did Hero, which was
2: number one in the UK as well. I remember when I, was, I used to do breakfast shows on radio, and I remember like, we played that song every day. It was massive. Hero, yeah. That was actually
3: my attempt at Bruce Springsteen. So then if I was doing <laughs> a sort of Bruce Springsteen riff, and it just became something else. And I, I, I like the idea of it being, instead of him being this Latin lover, of him being someone who actually is being vulnerable and saying, you know, would you dance? Would you laugh? Would you piss your pants? That was kind of the lyric I had going around. I just thought it was a, it was a kind of funny thing, you know. I knew we couldn't use PC patch, but that, and he liked that. He liked the flipping it, you know, I think, uh, and, and it kind of worked. But I didn't think for one minute it was even going to be a single. That's one of those things. I never know. I'm not one of those people who say, oh, I know
2: that's a hit. I, I really don't. I just know what I like. So how do you keep it fresh? And I would I would ask this question of Paul if and when we get to chat as well, because you know, there's so many songs here we're talking about. You obviously find you know new ways of doing things or inspiration from different places but what's that desire to kind of keep things fresh keep things new and where do you get your inspiration from
3: I, I get it from new artists actually i don't listen to a lot of music funnily enough every now and then i sort of dive into spotify and i usually feel depressed but you know so every now and then someone will say you know or oh, there's this thing. oh for instance like sam fenders amazing. these that just to me Sam Fender was he like was like hearing the Jam again almost. Yeah. You know, yeah. someone was actually writing about his town and his life and growing up in a beautiful way. And but apart from that, there's not a lot. And I love Ozi. What excites me is actually meeting new up and coming young artists. And hearing their stories, and they sort of play me things. And I've got kids now, you know, <laughs> that have grown up. They play me stuff. And then you should listen to this. Like, my daughter was, years ago, really got into Billie Eilish right at the beginning. And I was like, I didn't get it. But she was, no, listen, listen. Oh, no, yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it. So I kind of get that from them, because I'm quite, I'm quite old school, really. I, I still love play, I'll still play Beatles albums all the time and Stevie Wonder albums and all things like that And you know I love old songs really but it's my kids and the artists that I work with who tend to be a lot of younger than me who bring in things and I'm like oh that's cool yeah, that's what I really like uh, so what, what keeps it fresh for me I love that thing of sitting in a room one on one with a new artist, especially a new artist. But well, someone who's I, I, I obviously loved working with Lionel Richie and people like that as well. That, that's a different thing. They they've got so many amazing stories to tell you. They've had such amazing life experiences. But the thing that I really like is um, a new artist. You know, uh, someone up in common that just gives you their fresh perspective on how they see life, and and you hope that you can give them something that they would never have come up with themselves. And when that happens and they then take it somewhere new, that's magic, you know. So I think that keeps it fresh for me. How do I sort of get new ideas, just picking up the guitar, playing it in a different way, um, trying different instruments? You know, different sounds, things like that, sometimes inspire. you But a lot of the time, it's just things people say. Like my mom used to always come out with uh, little sayings, like "Ah, so if the what was it one she used to say, if the if the sky wasn't so dark, the stars wouldn't shine so bright." You know, and things like that. And life is only borrowed for a while. You know, little things like that, and I'd use them in songs. You know, didn't tell her, didn't credit her. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> she used to do some roses,
3: yeah. Well, I did tell her recently. <laughs> I actually wrote a song for Misha Paris recently called "Mama Said." I had that that one thing about um, your darkest hour is only sixty minutes long, so you have something like that. That one phrase will just say what you want the rest of the song to, to say, and it will just hang around your head for a few days. And the lyrics kind of usually start the process because they have a natural rhythm to where the melody should go. You know, so if you've got a phrase like that, it will kind of generate somewhere in your head i find it's a hard balance between not forcing it but at the same time forcing yourself does that make sense
2: yeah I tell you what, though, the thing when you say that line there, if I came up with a line like that, I'd be like, for days, I'd just be like, God, I'm brilliant.
3: <laughs> Probably someone else came up with it. A, a lot of the time, you know, things are just out there and you just pick them up, you know, that's the thing. But it's what you do with them. I'm not, you know, precious about titles and things like that. Like Hero, I remember thinking, oh, that's, it is a bit of a cheesy title, that, you know, should we, should we call it something else? But then it's what you do with it. And the, the thing about, the Enrique Hero one was it was a flip on the usual thing. It was saying, you know, I'm actually vulnerable. I'm not, it's not the, the Bonnie Tyler hero. It's the opposite of that.
2: Is it something that can be taught? Is it something that you can pass on and do you pass like Like, can you learn to write songs from a teacher? I think,
3: I think you can learn a craft. I think I've learned it from working with different people. I don't think you can learn the sort of magic bit. I mean, if you listen to Paul McCartney saying that, he said he still doesn't know what it is although he'll say he'll make suggestions about how to do it and you know that but really he still is captivated by the magic of it and I am too and I think that if you did sort of figure it out that you wouldn't do it anymore what I love is the thing that at the end of the day there can be a song there that wasn't there in the morning and every time I write with someone I believe that we can do something that might last forever And that's an incredible thing. I don't mean it in a big-headed way. I just mean it can happen, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. um, And it didn't exist before that day, you know. Uh, And you might just make something really, really special. And I think everyone can do it. I think everyone's got hit in them this is
2: whether they can do it again and again and whether they'll actually have the courage to put pens to paper or you know notes to phone or whatever it is these days yeah. hey look we've got some questions from the fans here that I have to ask as well okay so Jim gearing on Facebook said I'm really looking forward to this one Dan I love the questions I saw them play live loads of times my questions would be to ask him whether he thinks being on Paul's respond record label hindered the band's chances of success there seems to be a bit of a music press backlash against Paul after he split the jam and the respond artists seem to take the brunt of it and I think it affected." the band's success
3: I don't think so I think it was a great platform and I think like I say I think the haters went to the bar you know <laughs> I think enough people loved it loved it and, and I'm delighted and Jim thank you for um, if you were there at the gigs for supporting it and, and uh, if you loved it that's all that matters and I think enough people did I don't think it hindered us I think that Paul Weller gave us a A brilliant platform, a brilliant chance. Don't regret it.
2: Uh, He also says, does he have the rights, the tapes, etc., to allow the questions material, so the singles, the A, the B sides, plus the Belief album, unreleased gems like Across the Divide, to get an official UK release? Would love to see this.
3: Yeah, we should do that. I do have the the tapes, yeah. I got them off Paul, actually, about, about six, seven years ago because they were in a vault and they were going to be chucked out. So I said, no, I'll have them. So I've got them. Yeah, it would be good. I'll need to talk to John about that, John Robinson, and uh, see what we do about that. I've I've had there have been people in touch saying they wanted to do that and release that and I haven't done it before, uh, but maybe we should look at that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Come on. I mean I know you're busy, but come on. Uh, no, it's Nick- not it's not really that. I think really it's just my disappointment in the belief album. Uh-huh. I think it's that. I think some of the singles are really good, uh, but I've I've always felt that we never quite captured it in the studio with the album. That's my personal disappointment. But, you know, it's up to the others, the other members of the band as well, see what they want to do.
2: Actually, Nick Butler asked that. He says, are Frank and John still in the music business? I don't know about Frank, but I heard that um, John...
3: Has just done a record of some sort. Now, I don't know the release situation on it, but funny enough, I was speaking to Stephen Lennon, who was in the original lineup. Uh, way back and he said he'd spoken to John recently and he had been working on a record so
2: watch out for that, I don't know any more more information. We'll do some digging Um, Walkon Jenko on Twitter said I was introduced to the questions at the 100 Club and Drill Hall, I loved the energy and music played in the small venues, not easy so soon after the jam split but they were excellent their fashion sense was pretty dubious though
3: (laughs) Right, okay, I might blame blame Mr Weller for a bit of that because he he took us to, uh, he said I'm going to get you guys some clothes because before when we were doing our own thing, we were actually just, we used to wear, we'd either do the tracksuit thing, which was slightly ahead of its time, actually. <laughs> yeah. it was all about 30 years ahead, right? <laughs> yeah. Or we did the other thing. We sort of, as a kind of Mickey tape, we would wear like bow ties and white shirts like the Michael Jackson kind of. There was a bit of that. I remember us doing a bit of that. But he did say, right, okay, I'm going to take you out and get some clothes, guys. And he took us to Mr. Byrights. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I'll, I'll blame Weller for that one. <laughs> could have been CNA, you know. Come on, <laughs> <have> <laughs> uh, Jonathan Gregory says I remember seeing the questions many times. Um, and Paul Barry wrote some great songs: "Tuesday Sunshine," "Price You Pay," "The Learning Tree," "Tearsuit," which was a be- uh, which was a beauty, especially the bass intro. I used to write letters of support and encouragement to Paul, and he kindly wrote back. So this was a kind of learning from Mister Weller. I'm guessing, right? Yes, I, I
3: know that name. I know John. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I haven't thought of it for a while, but I haven't, I haven't been touched for a while. But yes, exactly, learning from uh, from Mr. Will. I, w- I wish I was as uh,
2: conscientious as he is. <laughs> but, uh, thank you, John. He saw you first at the Aston Students' Union in 84. Wow, can't remember that. But I, I know we played it, but uh,
3: can't remember that actual gig. But wow, 84. Yeah.
2: Wow. Here's another one. London Centrical says, I first saw them in St. Allstall. I mean, you got, you got about in 1982 with Dolly Mixter in the rim shot. So these were other really early signings to respond, right? Yeah. Yeah. The
3: rim shorts.
2: Yeah, yeah. Saw them live many times supporting Weller, respond packages, loads of their own gigs. Did their connection to Weller first give them a media boost, but ultimately become a negative? So we mentioned that. Uh, but he says, obviously, you, you know, you're a very successful songwriter and we kind of know what you did. Yeah. But what are the rest of them up to? What of Maureen Barry? So we talked about that. He mentioned Joseph Jones. Joseph Key, it was Keys, right? Yeah,
3: he was, he was Frank's brother. I, I'm afraid I don't know what he's doing. I haven't heard from Joseph. He was doing his own thing, though. He, he was—he wanted to do his own. Uh, artist
2: thing that I have no idea what happened here. We need to bring the band back together, man. It's, this is like there's a whole documentary in this. Yeah. I'm just playing live where really you do, yeah. Because you mentioned that there's that decision of kind of um pre-share where you're kind of going, okay, well I'm gonna you know lose the I wanna be a star element, I guess, and, and move into the writing songs bit. There yeah. must be an element you mentioned like making your own music again now, but there must be an element where that never goes away, right?
3: It never goes away. And I think what the sort of uh, the fix that I got from it while I was being a songwriter was doing the covers band, and I, I had a covers band called Fret Monkey, and uh, we uh, we played like seventy soul, uh, Sly Stone and Stevie Wonder stuff and and Chic, and it was great. It was a funky band. We had some amazing singers. That sort of kept me going, you know. But but then it got to a point where I, I just couldn't let the... The Band down, you know, was like oh, we've got a gig him, mean, you've got to be there till three in the morning. And I've got a session the next day, <laughs>
2: I've got to work, so I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with up. Lionel Richie tomorrow, I can't be up all night.
3: <laughs> it's literally, I <what> was, I <laughs> yeah, that was a funny story. That one, I remember that one, yeah. Just one of the gigs, yeah, it was actually funny you should say that because it was one of the one of the gigs <laughs> I had to cancel. Uh, it was my first time meeting Lionel Richie and working with him. And I had to play them. What I usually do, I usually have three bits to play, you know, and I sat down at the piano and I had three choruses. And the first one, there was absolute silence. Oh, I'm the like, <laughs> it's gonna... <laughs> The second one, I'm halfway through it and uh, still nothing. And I get on to the third one and he he taps me on his shoulder and he says, sorry, you've got the gig. <laughs> what said, The second one was a song called Angel, Watch." He still doesn't, he still doesn't, he's set to this day, but it was ter- terrifying.
2: Experience. <laughs> I love that, you wait. Yeah, have you written with Paul since? Uh, would you write with Paul? Would you love to write with yes, Paul? No, I have, I have. Funnily enough, James Morrison, uh,
3: it's about four years ago. I called Paul up. Oh, oh I should say, but the, the studios that we have, uh, with the team I work with, uh, our studio is is just outside Ripley oh you're just um, down the road the right Black Barn, the Black Barn is down there you know so I'd worked quite a lot with James Morrison at this point I, you know I'd done a couple of albums with him and, uh, You Make It Real was probably the biggest song I'd had with him yeah he was doing some new stuff I thought you know what well, I wonder if I would be try so I, I called up and he said yeah Do you fancy writing something uh, with me for James Morrison? He said, he's a great singer, isn't he? And he came down to our our studio, which is called Metrophonic, just outside Ripley. And um, we had a couple of days. We we wrote a couple of songs. And one of them's a real cracker. It's a real cracker. And to this day, every time Weller bumps into James Morrison, he's like, apparently James told me, he says, he's like, What's happening with that song, James? <laughs> I'll have <end> it back. <laughs> well, you know, no, no, you, you're not releasing it. You know, he's a great singer. You're not released it yet. So it's funny. Uh, here's another thing about Weller, I must say. It's it's, it's, a, it's a lovely thing, but it's also completely unique to Paul Weller. He doesn't really live by the rules that the rest of us have to live with, you know, which is you might write something that you think's brilliant and even the artist might love. But the record company has got to love it. The management has got to love it. The plugger's got to get it. It's all got to... Whereas with Paul Weller, it's like, I believe in it. Let's get it out. And he can do that. Nobody else could do that. And in fact, someone who brought it to my attention recently was... Uh, I've, I've been working with uh, Paul's daughter, Leah
2: Weller. Written for the new album that's coming yeah, out very yeah, soon, got,
3: right? Yeah, I've got a couple of songs on the new album. While we were write, writing, something came up about that. Oh, yeah, she'd heard this song, what this James Morrison song, called Broken... And uh, she said it's great, and um, she said my dad doesn't understand why it's not out. You know why it's not being released? It could be great, you know. And she was laughing, and I I was laughing too. She said, "Yeah, he just he doesn't understand. (laughs) It's it's just like there's a whole line of people who've got to give it the thumbs up, and that's our world. That's the world that we live in. You know, we might love something, but..." unless x y and z give it the thumbs up it ain't
2: coming out you know
3: but i'm hopeful that 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 song will come out well has got anything to do and it? it keeps bumping into james morris <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: well next time i'm down that way because we often take the kids to uh, rhs Whisley, just around the corner from you both oh yeah you guys, right, yeah. which is beautiful yeah. there so next time i'm down there i'll pop in and have a little listen that'd be lovely <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yes i'll play a, a couple of things um also funny enough I've been uh, last year. I was writing with
2: uh, DC Lee as well. This uh, is for her new album that's coming out yeah, next year. Everything, right?
3: Yeah, I had um, what it was. This was a different one. It was it was nothing to do with Paul. It was um, someone that I knew before who co-manages her. And I think said, you know, have you got anything for D? And I, and I actually had a backing track of something that was quite kind of so. Jazzy uh, and I sent her that and she's written a song over that. I don't know, fingers crossed it'll come out, but you know I never know. You know, I people always say to me, you know, oh uh, so how do you get paid? Do you get paid then when you sit in a room and and uh, work with someone? No. So oh, do you get paid when then um, it's recorded then? When no. Uh so do you get paid when the you know the manager okay? No, no, no. I only get paid when it's released, mate, you know, when it's <laughs> when it's a hit, that's it. Until that it's all on spec. People don't understand
2: that. They think, oh, yeah. how'd you get paid? You know, it's, it's a weird thing. Yeah. Even more bloody frustrating that James Morrison's not really that song, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <exactly. laughs> Come on, James, yeah. take the hint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man, this has been so lovely chatting with you, Paul. I really love digging into these memories and your stories. Thank you so much for your time. I have two final questions before you go, okay? So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council, or solo. What are you going to go with? Just the one. Just the one. Oh, What's what's going through your brain?
3: What's popping in right now? Well, there's two, there's, oh. there's two songs, and I'm fighting between... It's, it's Tube Station because of the impact it had on me when I heard it that first time. I'd never heard anything like that. And someone writing about someone being murdered in a tube station and making it a piece of art. It's a classic thing about Weller. he can have one phrase like the distant echo of faraway voices, and straight away you're there. You know, he's very good at setting a scene with minimal language, you know, and it's so powerful. The toffee rappers and the the guy lying there, dying, thinking, oh, they've got the keys, she'll think it's me. That song takes you um, to the darkest, darkest place in a a beautiful song. You know, how he could do that at age, and he was 19, wasn't he, or something when he wrote it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it would be that one, but the other one is obviously that's entertainment. I remember hearing that one, and by that time, you know, we knew Paul and, and he was playing his things. And I remember hearing that one going, wow, that's stream of Consciousness. And he wrote that one really quickly. But I'm going to also say, hang on, there's, a, <laughs> there's, another, <laughs> there's another one. Because we were there. I was there in the studio and they were recording Temple Miles.
2: Ah, oh, tell me back to that session. Come on. Yeah,
3: I was there. We were, um, it was one of our first forays down to London. We'd done some gigs and. John and I were invited up with a bunch of the thirty other kids to sit in the room. Well I remember Bruce was doing the line and Paul was making cups of tea and just talking to everyone and just it's the town, town called Malice. And that was a hit. I mean, I know I said I don't I don't know when necessarily when it hits a hit, but he and that there it's like, oh wow, that's just such an amazing song. Oh, God, I've said three, haven't I? They're all, they're <laughs> it's crazy, great great those songs, stories. Songs. But I love, I love some of his new stuff as well. I love Gravity. I love Broken Stones. Uh, but it would have to be, I guess it's going to have to be Tube Station because it was It was the first time, I mean, I, I'd heard in the city as well, and I thought that was great, the Tube Station and that whole album, you know, the Tube
2: Station in particular, I think. When you would, guys were supporting the jam, from, right, like, what was it, 1980 onwards, right? You'd do your set. What would you do after you'd done your set? You'd obviously see the, watch the band, but where would you go?
3: Oh, we'd go out from I mean, yeah. sometimes side of stage. I do remember some of them. We liked going out there, and, yeah, experiencing it. Oh, I, I, I must have seen them so many times. Amazing gigs. I remember one in Guildford, which is quite near where I live now. Um, this was later on, and I remember being, that was side stage. And I've got a, a memory of... Scrape away that baseline and the sweat coming down in the, <laughs> in the, in the, the hot summer's and it was just electric. But so many uh, great gigs, What a yeah. band! Yeah.
2: Them, well, you wish you could bottle those memories, then you and kind of like or oh, transport back to that. I, I mean, I know that with Weller Solo, like, right? At those beginning, you know, when I discovered Paul, it was ho yeah, into tomorrow. All that time and those gigs at that time were just incredible. And you go, oh, God, I wish my memory was better.
3: <laughs> yeah, and we didn't have phones into video and all that. Yeah, but yeah. all the all the more we we were immersed in it, and it was completely you know in the moment we were there, and there were no distractions, and it was uh, it was a brilliant time. I don't think there's ever been a a band like The
2: Jam. They were really special. Hey, look, final question for this podcast. So the purpose of this podcast is to meet amazing talents like yourself, dig into these Weller connections and hear their stories. But it's really for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It's a bit of a daft thing to create a a podcast of over 100 episodes just to get to the end point. But but that's the goal. We've got to make this happen. Um, If it happens and I get to chat to Paul, what should I ask him?
3: Ah, right, okay. What keeps you going? Where does that come from? Where's that fountain springing from? What's that childish initial inspiration that's still flowing through your veins? What is that magic? Where does it come from? And, you know, I I don't know the answer to that myself. You know, so I, and I don't know if I've asked him that question. Uh, maybe I should. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure if you ask it, you'll get a better answer. Anyway, but that's what I want to know because he's got so much enthusiasm. He's still interested in. In, in, in what's going on now he doesn't really want to look back although he although he loves old records like we all do he doesn't want to look back you know and I, I often think to myself if I'm writing with a new artist I think how would Paul feel about that you know I don't mean in quality control I just mean that how would the how would he take that how would that inspire him you know so I I, I do sort of think of him uh you're right, Pete. That's my dog. Yeah. <laughs> I need a walk. <laughs> yeah. I, often, I often wonder, you know, like how he would take that, you know, and, and that kind of inspires me a little bit. I think a lot, a lot of uh, writers do that. They like to zone so in on, on their heroes a bit, like think, eh, how would McCartney take that phrase or something, or or that artist, you know, what would they do if they met young James Bay, uh, and uh, how would how would they? What would they give to him Some, you know, sort of thing? I, I just wonder what would keep what keeps Weller as enthusiastic as he's been all these years and he's still the same today. And I know if I if I sent him a song now, you know, it would be like he might say, I don't really like that one, you know. But if he liked it, he'd have ten suggestions uh, about it. And you should try this do this. Well, what about trying it as well? What keeps him that young, that young, really? It feels yeah. like he's still 19 you know it's incredible
2: really how he keeps that going what a great answer hey look man this has been so special thank you so much for your time i look forward to hearing what's next whether it's you writing for others or whatever's coming out of your own material fingers crossed on all that as well and obviously the questions we release special edition and all that kind of stuff too
3: all the best and say hi to all the questions fans and thank you for their comments and questions that's lovely
2: My thanks once again to Paul Barry. What an incredible journey and what a talent. Please do check out the show notes for this podcast on my website, Paul Weller Fan Podcast for more details. Now, whilst you're there, you can also show your support by heading to my store. We've got exclusive merchandise, including right now our very first official podcast mug. And if you like, you can buy a virtual coffee to fill it with too. Don't forget, if you do that, you get yourself a shout out too. So on the roll call this week... Alan Ivory says, Hi, Dan. I have recently started listening to your fantastic podcast. It really makes me smile. Just fans talking about someone that we like. A simple idea, but nailed perfectly. Well, thank you, Alan. Hi to Travis Blake says cheers for the fascinating, informative and entertaining podcast, Dan. Absolutely loving it, man. All the best, Travis. Thanks, Travis. Much appreciated. Hi to Jeremy from Sydney. Says well done, Dan. Thank you. And greetings down under. Jason Pevivar, Excellent podcast, Dan. Every week is another treat. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Richard Noble. Hi to you. Says keep up the excellent work, Dan. Following your journey from Melbourne, Australia in your quest to speak to the King. Hello to our other subscribers. Mike C. Richard jones nerzik simon cartilage martin glover steve perry vince bicarino alex mclaughlin peter cook martin alaric terry vine andy torture brian g mike steer kevin smith andy Little, jen howard brian hi to all of you modcliffe says great work dan my car journeys are better now Thank you for that, smiley face. Cheers to all of you. And don't forget, you can also leave a review wherever you get your podcasts as well. Just a couple of examples. This one from Lazy Poop, says Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Fantastic episode with Billy Bragg. Great to hear the passion and belief from him that remains as strong as ever and the core values shared with Paul. Thank you. Don't forget, leave a podcast review wherever you get yours. Subscribe and follow as well. If you want to get in touch, you can do so on social media at Weller Fan Pod on Twitter or on Instagram and Facebook. Paul Weller fan podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.